All right, good morning, everyone. <laughs> good to see everybody today. Um, happy summer again to you. It's good to be here. Um, if I haven't met you yet, um, my name's Roland. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's uh, just a pleasure to worship with you each and every Sunday. It really is. It's the highlight of our week, and we love worshiping God. We love worshiping His Son, Jesus. We love moving in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we love doing it with you. So um, God bless you for being here to um, honor our King. And we'd also like to um, honor some of our missionaries from Fiji who are here. Come on, give it up some of our heroes, church planners in Fiji who are here with us today. So make sure you get to know them and hear some of the great stories about all that God's doing there. Um, guys, we are going to jump right into it today because I'm excited about um, this particular message. We actually have been starting a message called the Joshua Generation and learning what we can understand and what we can take from the book of Joshua as applicable to today as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, as we talked about last week, that everything that was written in the past, meaning written in the Old Testament, was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Hope in what? Hope in Jesus Christ and hope in the fact that all that the Israelites saw through the power of God as they were trusting in him during that period of time can also be the believers as they're walking with Christ in this particular age. So what we looked at last week was we talked about the fact that God's first command, if we're going to understand the purpose for which we're going to walk in him in sort of a a mentality of the Israelites in the Joshua generation is that he gave a command three different times, be strong and courageous, right? Be strong and courageous to come into that which God has called us to do, to not only take the land of our own hearts and our own souls and seeing our salvation being worked out with fear and trembling, but then also being an influence for the gospel in the land in which he called us to live, right? So there's both an internal land that we're taking for the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And then there's also an external land being an influence through the overflow of God's work within us to the land around us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. And he said to do that, you need to be both strong and courageous. Today, we're going to talk a little bit more about that mentality, but we're going to talk about it in terms of a purpose greater than me a purpose greater than me. That's the title of our message today. And if you're taking notes, we're going to divide it into two parts. Number one, the title, a purpose greater than me, but then also something that we need to get deeply embedded within us, which is that we serve a God greater than my purpose. We serve a God greater than my purposes, which is something that we need to hear today because people are so interested in their own callings, their own ambitions, their own pursuits, and don't understand that the God that we serve is greater than even the purpose that he gives us. Amen? Okay, so we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into the Word. Father, we thank you for your Word to us today. Open it to us, please. Help us to see Jesus, your Son, Jesus the King, high and lifted up. And God, regardless of how we've come in today, God, may we leave reconciled to you. May we leave cleansed and empowered by your Word and by your Spirit to do your will. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Okay, so number one, a purpose greater than me. A purpose greater than me. What we've got to understand in the church today is that you are not independent in the body of Christ. You are not independent in the body of Christ. How many people can say amen to that? Okay? We live in a Western society, in a Western culture that uh, glorifies independence. 
It glorifies independent thinking. It glorifies that which you can accomplish on your own, by your own strength, and by your own ability. But whenever God calls you to himself through his son Jesus, he calls you into his body, and you are no longer independent. Your calling and destiny is ultimately wrapped up in other people. Your calling and your destiny is ultimately wrapped up in other people. I I know that we may not like hearing that, but if we read the Bible, it's true, is it not? What you do in God is wrapped up in those that you love and that you serve. You've not ultimately fulfilled your purpose in Christ until you've done all that you can to see those to whom he's connected you come to know Jesus and fulfill their call in him. It's not just about your call, it's about the call of those who are around you. And as we pick up in Joshua today, we're going to see why this needs to be our mentality. Joshua chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible today, the scripture will be there for you on the screen. Let's read it together. It says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp, and command the people, Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now this is going to be an important group of people. To the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over, armed before your brothers, and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord Lord your God, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So when we pick up this part of the story, what we see is that Moses is dead. He led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness for 40 years, and they're on the precipice of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, which would ultimately become the Israelites' promised land. God gave him a charge, and he gave Caleb a charge, who were the only two of that previous generation who trusted in God and said, we can take this land if God is with us. So as the other generation passed away, they rose up in faith, and they were appointed by God to lead them into the land of their possession. They're on the precipice of this land. And what we see are there different tribes in the nation of Israel. And to get into the land that God promised them, they would have to cross what's known as the Jordan River. If you've ever been to the uh, uh, um, Israel, modern-day Israel today, you'll still see it there today. And they had to cross it to get into the land and take possession of it. But amongst the 12 tribes of Israel, there were at least two and a half, right? The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, who were content 
just to take possession of the land that they could on the other side of the Jordan. So if you see this is the east side and this is the west side, they had to pass over to get into the land. The Reubenites, the half, um, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were willing to stay on the side they were already on. And they said, as long as I could have my land and get comfortable there, have all my needs met, I'm good to stay there. I'm not going to necessarily cross over with the rest of the tribes into the land that God said we had to fight to take possession of and therefore fulfill his promise to his people. And so this is the stage that we're seeing set for us as we look into the scripture. But what God does is he very clearly through Joshua gives a command and he says to those people, it is not enough that you come into your land. It is not enough that you come into your comforts. It is not enough that you come into the provision that God has for you. The job is not done until those around you to whom God has connected you come into their land as well. It is not finished. The job is not done until those who surround you, those you know, those you're praying for, those you love, actually take possession of the land that God has for them as well. What we see in the scripture is it starts with the leaders. As um, Joshua is rallying the people, saying, hey, listen, consecrate yourselves because God is going to do great things among you. The leaders first repeat back to Joshua. Hey, Joshua, even though you're charging us, you need to remember that God has commanded you to do something. Just as he was with Moses, he's going to be with you. And so, Joshua, you, we're coming behind you and standing with you. You be strong and courageous. You're, we're with you, heart and mind. We're with you to take possession of the land that God has given you. So they were immediately saying, Joshua, it's not just about this vision that you have. We're in this vision too. We're behind you in that which God has charged us to do. And so many Christians live dissatisfied lives dissatisfied lives because they focus and rejoice solely on their own accomplishments and achievements and not the success and progress of their brothers and sisters. Is that not true? We're content to work hard and labor and believe and even pray for our advancement in our careers or in our families, you know, seeing good success come from the blessing of God into our lives. But then most often we stop there and wonder why we're still dissatisfied in our lives. Anybody ever experienced that before? It's sort of like, is this it? I've reached another pinnacle, but still I feel like there's something missing. Is this it? Is constantly the question. Well, the reason why is because he said it's never just about you. It's about you and the people to whom God's connected you. How do we know this? We know that even in the New Testament, John the Apostle, the beloved disciple of Jesus, said things this way. In 3 John 1.4, he said, I have no greater joy. Joy is what we're all looking for in life, right? Love, peace, and happiness. Joy. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy. It's me loving God and serving him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, but it's also those to whom I've ministered, right? It's not enough that I'm walking faithfully with Jesus and holiness. My joy comes from the fact that those I'm connected to are doing the same right? In a family, it does not matter what's going on with the individual. It matters how the whole family is doing. And that's what God's calling us to here in his scripture. Your strength is ultimately found in how well you help others to take their land and walk in the truth of Christ. 
It's not just enough that you're walking in the truth of Christ. Your strength is determined by how well you're helping others. This was his charge to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, many of you have seen the uh, Lion King, the classic version, um, but how many of you have seen the new updated version? Okay, and you've heard James Earl Jones's voice still there, 88 years old, still going strong. Mufasa, woo, say it again, right? He's like still there. But I like um, one of the other roles that James Earl Jones played, and one of the roles he played was Darth Vader. And I take inspiration from this, though it's funny. He says, strong people don't put others down, they lift them up. And if you know anything about Star Wars, anyway. All right, sorry, this was a geek joke. Anyway, but here's the point. He's saying that strong people, your strength is found and lifting people up, right? That's the determination of your strength, not just what you can accomplish on your own, but how you lift other people in your world around you. Now, to understand this and go a little bit further, we need to look back at this original interaction that the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had with Moses whenever he was charging them to go into the land. So if you would, look at Numbers 32. What this is is the context for which um, Joshua was referring before Moses died whenever he was charging the people to go into the land. And it exposes for us some of the temptations that we have on a daily basis if we're going to serve Christ faithfully. It said this, when Moses was still alive, the Reubenites and Gadites, watch this now, who had very large herds and flocks. The Reubenites and Gadites who had very large herds and flocks. What that means is that in their cultural context, they were wealthy. They had a lot going for them. And they got it by the blessing of God. How many people know that, right? They got it by the blessing of God. But it began to shape and dominate their thinking. It said, the Reubenites who had very large herds and flocks saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. Were suitable for livestock. The land where they were was suitable for livestock. They were like, hey, listen, I have all this that I'm responsible for. I've got this, uh, you know, this great wealth. And this land on the other side of the Jordan, before we cross over, this will take care of my needs. So they came to Moses and Eleazar, the priest, and to the leaders of the community and said, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elelah, Sabam, Nebo, and beyond. The land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel. And what he's talking about there is that there was a progression of taking the land out of Egypt, right? They came out of Egypt, and even before they crossed the Jordan, there were kings and other nations that they had to subdue, right? Before they crossed the Jordan. This is the land that they're talking about prior to crossing the Jordan. He says, these lands are suitable for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Hey, listen, I'm just trying to take care of that which God has given me. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Watch this. Do not make us cross the Jordan. Moses, though, said to the Gadites and Reubenites, should your fellow Israelites go to war while you sit here? Should everybody else go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land the Lord has given them. 
This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. After they went up to the valley of Eshcol and viewed the land, they discouraged the Israelites from entering the land the Lord um, had given them. The Lord's anger was aroused that day, and he swore this oath. Because they have not followed me wholeheartedly, not one of those who were 20 years old or more, when they came up out of Egypt, will see the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not one except Caleb and Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, son of Nun, for they followed the Lord wholeheartedly. What was he saying was the sin there. The sin was that the Israelites, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh, they were willing to settle in the land that had already been taken and say, job done. I've got mine. It's good to go. We're good to go, right? And God was saying, why are you so satisfied in having your own land while everyone else has to get up and fight? When you're solely preaching about all of your comforts and all of your accolades and all of your accomplishments while everybody else is still trying to fight by faith into the land, you're actually discouraging them from actually the fight that they need in them to take the land God's given them. And if we're only focused on our comforts, then we're in fact pulling the faith that those we're connected to need to take the land that God's ultimately given, not just you as an individual, but us as a people. Does this make sense? It is not just about us. The lesson of Dan, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh is that they gravitated to what seemed like calmer pastures, where the battle against the kings of Canaan had already been won. They surely would have asked the question, what would be the best grazing area for my flocks? My flocks. Not everybody else's, but mine, right? When we were at the uh, World Conference, we got to go to Disney World, and one of the, my favorite rides there is the Nemo ride. You know, but outside of the Nemo ride, there's that, uh, there are those, uh, what is it, uh, Pelicans or whatever they are. And they're like, remember the uh, Finding Nemo movie? And they're all like, mine, my mine, 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 mine. That's how most Christians sound nowadays. Mine, my mine, mine. You know, mine, it's mine. <laughs> right? Only being concerned about my flocks. Instead, however, <clears throat> what God should, would have called them to ask is what ground has God called me to take with my people? Instead of what's best for my flocks, what has ground has God called me to take with my people? Moses' response was clear. What we've got to understand in Jesus is there's no living out the gospel without some measure of suffering in our lives. Hello? Not a popular word in the West, but it's true. There is no living out the gospel without some measure of suffering in our lives. In this instance, in the battles that the Israelites had to face to take their land, how many people know there was suffering involved? They were in real battles. It wasn't a metaphorical battle. They were fighting with swords and arrows flying, suffering. In Acts 14.22, even when Paul was talking about the kingdom of God, he said we must endure many hardships to enter the kingdom, right? We must endure many hardships to enter the kingdom. 
And if we don't embrace this, we can be so loaded down with the pleasures and comforts of this world to long for the next, which God says will be far sweeter and superior. That's why in Colossians, he gives us a charge. He says, let's set your mind, since you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. But it is hard to live for Jesus if we're so loaded down by what we have today or the pursuits of today. It's hard to live for Jesus and set our minds on the things to come. You got to think about all the parables that Jesus gave and the interactions that he gave. The parable of the rich young ruler comes to mind, right? He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, obey the commandments. And he obviously said, hey, listen, I've done all that. I've been a moral person ever since I was young, right? And ultimately, Jesus said to him, okay, one thing you lack, go sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. What Jesus was doing is putting his finger on that which was loading him down. Loading him down. And it said that he went away sad because he had great wealth. He was so comfortable in this world, he wasn't willing to get rid of the thing that was keeping him from following Christ wholeheartedly. And the charge is, may we not find ourselves in the same situation. I was reading a recent statistic in uh, Investopedia where it said that literally in the Western world that there, we want to see more happen for the gospel, but in the non-Western world, the gospel is exploding where they're not weighed down by so much, right? In the non-Western world, the gospel is exploding. Here in the Western world, we're fighting tooth and nail, right, to see the gospel advance, One of the statistics that may attribute to it is that we don't realize that if you make above $32,400, you are part of the world's economic 1%. We always talk about one percenters, right? But did you know that if you make $32,400 a year, you're part of the world's international 1%. So if you're an accountant, a registered nurse, or even an elementary school teacher, congratulations. The average age for any of these careers falls well within the top 1% worldwide. And are these the things that are holding us back from not only getting our land, but also being about the business of our Father and the land of those who are around us? Timothy Keller, actually, uh, who I reference a lot, is actually give, gave a good commentary about the state, <clears throat> the state of the um, church today, but how the kingdom of God made a transition during the uh, time of Augustine it, in its understanding of what the kingdom was about. And in his book, Making Sense of God, he said this, Christianity then saw the battle for human virtue as no longer one of head versus heart, meaning becoming more rational, nor mind over matter, meaning getting more technical mastery over the world. The battle was over where to direct the supreme love of your heart. That's where the battle was. Will it be toward God and your neighbor, no matter who your neighbor is? Or will it be toward power and wealth for yourself and your tribe? Augustine was the first to formulate this, drawing in biblical teaching. Cambridge historian Henry Chadwick argued that Augustine marks an epoch in the history of human moral consciousness. For the first time, the supreme goal of life was not self-control and rationality, but love. 
when Jesus and his teachings came into the world. There was a shift. It wasn't just mastery over yourself, but it was actually love. Love was required to redirect the human person away from self-centeredness and um, self-centeredness towards serving God and others. Augustine's confessions laid the groundwork for what we would call psychology in a way that non-Christian classical thought could not have done, meaning that in the ancient world, they were all about survival of the fittest, right? All about progress at anybody else's expense. When Jesus came on the scene and the Judeo-Christian ethic came on the scene, it was a change of the internal motivation, it, the internal motivation was a motivation to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to what? Like it, love our neighbor as ourself. So there was a revolution that took place even in the ancient world through the introduction of the gospel. But it always came not just with an understanding of what he's done for you, but now what he'll do through you to help others what he'll do through you to advance his gospel and his kingdom. We've got to always remember the cross of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis said it this way, when God becomes a man and lives as a creature among his own creatures in Palestine, then indeed his life is one of supreme self-sacrifice and leads ultimately to Calvary, right? If we're saying we are a people of the cross, we are a people who follow Jesus, his commandments, and his ways. Ultimately, that leads to self-sacrifice in Calvary. And just as we die daily to our own desires and our own needs, he says we are resurrected in his power to love him, serve him, and serve others. But we cannot think that we'll fulfill the call of God without it coming at great cost to us. Hello? We cannot think we will fulfill the call of God without it coming at great cost to us. Aaron Lutzer, who was actually the uh, previous pastor down at the Moody Church, great church down, down the street, he's retired now, but he said this, those who give much without sacrifice are reckoned as having given little. What's he referring to there? He's talking about the widow's offering, right? The widow's offering. This is the mentality of the people of God. When we understand there's a purpose greater than myself. The problem is we are myopic by nature and easily fall into traps that say, as long as I and my family are accomplishing our goals, we're all provided for and happy, then that's all that matters. We feel like we don't have the time or motivation to take the gospel to the land that God has called us to take with the people with whom he's called us to take it but we've got to come back to the fact that there's a purpose greater than ourselves. When we do, we also understand that there's a God that we serve that's greater than my purpose. There's a God that I serve that's greater than my purpose. Ultimately, the only one who can free us to live in such love, free us of a selfishly motivated altruism, is Jesus Christ. You know what I mean by a selfishly motivated altruism? Altruism, doing for others to make yourself feel better about yourself. If you're in a company, sometimes they have matching programs, right? And a lot of times the company doesn't do it for the benefit, really, of those they're serving, but to get a tax write-off. <laughs> and to actually put a stamp on the company that they do something good for the community, right? Socially responsible. 
It's a selfishly motivated altruism. But Jesus Christ, when he introduces the gospel, the true gospel into our lives, he sets us free from a selfishly motivated altruism to the love that he actually intends for us to live in. As we remember this, the fruit of the flesh that we're resisting is ultimately selfish ambition and rivalry. If you look at Galatians and it talks about the fruit of the spirit and the fruit of the flesh, right? He says, if you live by the fruit of the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. One of those fruits is selfish ambition, otherwise known as rivalry, right? Just trying to get ahead or one-up the person next to you. My ambitions are surrounded by how many letters I could put after my name as opposed to another. The command that we're called to obey, though, is fighting as one man for the faith of the gospel. When Paul talked about it, he talked about it this way in exhorting the Philippian church. Philippians 1, um, he said this in verse 27. Talking to the church, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, that you're standing firm as a people in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Think about this foreshadowing in the book of Joshua, right? Reubenites, Gadites, half-tribe of Manasseh, stand in one mind, one spirit, with the people who are crossing the Jordan into the land to take it. It's not just that you have yours. Be in one heart, one mind, one spirit with those around you. For the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also what? It's been granted to us that we should not only believe in him, but what? Come on, say it out loud. You need to hear it out off of your own lips. Suffer. Suffer. That's right. Kingdom people suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, right? Paul said, right, great. You've come from darkness to light, from death to life, and from the power of Satan to God. Great. But I still have a struggle where there is gospel preaching beyond you. Now let's go together. There's a struggle I still have. Let's go on. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, proper comfort, any comfort. See, comfort's not a bad word, but it's a proper biblical comfort. If there's any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing. And yes, that means nothing. In the Greek, it's translated nothing. (laughs) Do nothing. Nothing. When I'm making decisions about my career, when I'm making decisions about my spouse, what I do with my kids, my family, my time. Do nothing out of what? Selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Is this not what he was talking about in Joshua? The answer is yes. Look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. When you're making decisions about what you do with your time, talent, and resources, make decisions not only according to what you're interested in, but the interests of Christ and others. How do we live this way? How do we live this way? It's ultimately knowing that there's a God greater than my purpose. And God helps to come in and declutter our lives. How many people recognize this picture? Does that look like not just your room, but maybe a child's room? Come on, anybody want to admit that? Okay, or next picture. It may not be a bedroom, but it may be your garage. Next picture. Can we get that one up there? No, don't worry about that one. It looked just like that. Okay? It looks just like that. Yeah, right, 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 right. But those are our lives, right? Those are our lives loaded down with so much stuff, so much opportunity here in the city of Chicago. So much to do, so little time, right? And God's like, you're cluttering up your life, and we need to daily and intentionally make room for God and his kingdom purposes with the people he's given you to fulfill his call. Out of his mercy, though, towards us, God will allow anything that we trust in before and besides him to be taken away that our hearts actually ultimately might be freed. Anybody realize that? God will ultimately lovingly come in and he says, if this is cluttering up your life too much, I'll be happy to take it from you. For some people, it's been a job. For some people, it's been a loved one. For some people, it's been health. For some people, it's been a sense of financial stability. He's like, listen, I will remove out of love for you anything that you set up as an idol in front of me, that you might see me and serve me clearly. Now, the beautiful thing about the scripture is God gives us a charge and he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time, right? So God gives us a choice. Either we get to humble ourselves or he'll gladly humble us. Isn't that the truth? Jesus said, I'm the stone that the builders rejected that's become the capstone. And Jesus said, anyone who falls on this rock will be shattered to pieces. Ooh, good news. But anyone on whom this rock falls will be crushed. One way or another, we're going to break. Jesus says either we're going to fall on him, be shattered to pieces, and be rebuilt in his image, or in judgment, he's going to crush us. The choice is ours. He says, lovingly humble yourselves. I say that to myself all the time. Humble yourself, Rollin, before it's too late. Anybody say that to themselves, talk to themselves? I had a loving father who disciplined me regularly. And I said, I could either humble myself and talk about what I'd done and admit it, or it could be lovingly coerced out of me. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, all right, people in here. He's like, you'll either tell me the truth now, (laughs) or we're going to get to the bottom of this. And I'm like, I do mean bottom. (laughs) Okay. The question we need to ask ourselves is what needs to be cleaned out of our lives? 
what needs to be cleaned out of our lives to make room for God and ultimately his purposes. That's not a question that you ask once. That's a question that you ask regularly. Regularly. If any of you have moved or lived in Chicago for any period of time, you've probably moved once, twice, three times, right? Anybody moved multiple times living in Chicago? Okay. I'm in my fourth house in se- seven years. <laughs> yeah. It's like, all right, brothers. <laughs> you know? But the beauty of moving is what? Every time you move, you downsize, right? Yes. You declutter the house. You declutter and say, I don't need this that I got at the yard sale back in 1982, <laughs> right? I haven't used it since 1984, right? And it's like you declutter to make room for that which is actually important. Same thing we need to do with God on a daily basis to say, God, I'm centered in Christ, his purposes, and finding not just my land is taken, but helping those around me. Ask yourself the question, what needs to be decluttered? And we're going to end with this. And with this, that it's impossible for us to live faithfully this way without being inwardly redeemed by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's why we need to come to God daily in his word, in prayer, in worship, and say, God, search me and test me. See if there's any offensive way in me. And ultimately, what are we saying? Clean me out. Clean me out so that I could be grounded in you, Christ alone, and your kingdom purposes. Jesus was the same name in the Hebrew as Joshua, which means the Lord saves, right? Joshua meant the Lord saves. Jesus means the Lord saves. He's giving us a picture. To take this land, you need Jesus to save you in your heart of hearts to free you from selfishness, to free you even from the fear of the future that if you don't just pay attention only to your land, your family, and your ambitions, then it's going to fall apart in the future for you. God said this to the contrary. Mark chapter 8, calling the crowds to him and with his disciples. This is Jesus talking. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus said, I don't just have a cross. Guess what? I'm giving you one too. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Jesus said, I died. Guess what? You get to die too. But if he, he said, if you die too, you also be resurrected too. Resurrected in the life of the king. He said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke, he said, the frequency daily. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Not might, but will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with his holy angels. He's saying, ultimately, find yourself with me. Find yourself with me. If today you found that you've been living a self-sufficient life, he says, run from that today, run to the cross, and find yourself in him. If you've been a Christian for a while, and you've been building your own monuments to yourself or your own family, he says, turn away from that today, 
find yourself in him, lose your life, and ultimately save it. It's not just about what he's given you. It's about you fighting into the land for your brothers and sisters around you so that they can get their lands too. And if you make a choice to do that today, he said, I will empower you by my word and by my spirit to live that way. And yes, just like Joshua, just like Caleb, you'll take the land that was given not just to you personally, but to his people. That is the call and that's the covenant of God. And it's what he's called us to do. Not just be concerned about ourselves, but to be concerned about his kingdom purposes, his ways, not just now, but for all our days until he either makes his return or he comes for our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen? Amen. All right, let's worship him.